Today I'm supposed to talk to you about heaven. The Lord just wants to encourage you and comfort you, and I, I want to explain what the Bible says about what we call the spirit world or that Jesus called the kingdom of heaven, and it also includes eternity and where believers in Jesus go when they die, but it's a lot more than that actually. So I want to answer some questions that you may have, and it probably won't answer all of your questions, but I just want to tell you what the Bible says. So the Bible describes heaven as God's home. It's his realm. And the, actually the thing that is mentioned in the Bible the most is his throne. The throne of God, the authority and government of God seem to be the center of the universe. It's described in Isaiah 6, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel 40 to 48, Revelation 4, 2 Corinthians 12, all describe this spirit world, uh, this realm, and it's usually described as a throne room where God, who is made of fire, is sitting on a throne made of fire and he's surrounded by his angels and all the saints that have died before us and there's just eternal worship going on, but there's a lot more than that. There's fragrances and colors and amazing, unearthly things going on that the Bible describes cryptically. It doesn't tell us actually a whole lot. And actually today is not my point necessarily to describe that. If you want to read those scriptures for yourself, you can. Or on SoundCloud, you can go back through our, my sermon podcast uh, several years and you can find my sermon that I did on the throne room of God and what all is going on there. I really just want to talk about the people that are there. I got to set some context here. So I need you, I need you to start by knowing that heaven is not a separate world. In God's cosmos, in the universe, there isn't physical and non-physical. There isn't earthly and spiritual. We use those terms, but really it's all one place. And it's all, it's all one cosmos and one universe. And heaven is a specific place in the universe. I don't mean you could jump on a spaceship and go past the farthest star and find a floating golden city out there. That's not what I mean. It's something different than that. It's very difficult to explain, but I'm going to do my best. But it's not a separate place. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is in our hearts, and God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are all right here in this room. And the Bible says that Jesus fills all in all. The entire creation is full of heaven, of Jesus. Uh, the spirit world is not separate world from the physical world. Jesus fills everything. And the Bible says if you went out to the farthest reaches of the earth or to the farthest star, there is God. And he fills everything in an enormous sense, but he also fills everything in a microscopic sense. If you went, shrunk yourself down to ride on an electron, there is God. He's there too. He's infinite in both directions. And it's all one. It's all one world. There is a place, though, in that world that is Eternity and the Bible in Revelation describes the God's mountain and His city as a, a city called the New Jerusalem, and it's a fourteen hundred square mile pyramid that comes down to earth. And God lives on earth in this place. It has walls. It has foundations of gemstones. It has each gate is a pearl. It's where we get the word, the phrase, the pearly gates. This walled city has gigantic pearls as gates, and it's a place. It has a boundary, and God is there, and God is everywhere, but he's specifically in that place. 
So where is that place? Because you couldn't get on a spaceship and go out and travel around and find it. It isn't in our three-dimensional world. This is extremely difficult concept to explain, but I'm going to do my best. I have a mathematic science explanation for you, and I have a fable to help you understand this. And let's go with math and science first. All right, so we live in a three-dimensional world. We can measure things this way and this way and this way. X, Y, and Z axis. Remember high school geometry. All right, with three dimensions. Length, width, and depth or height. And those are our three dimensions. And we can understand, minutely we can understand how time is a fourth dimension. Because we're moving through our three dimensions over a course of time. And actually, it's a whole new... It was, I would have so much fun telling you how time is actually physical, but I can't get into that. That would be a rabbit trail. But advanced math and quantum physics can predict that there's actually 10 dimensions, but we, we can't find them. We can't experience them because we're limited to our three plus time. But there's mathematic predictions that there may be 10 dimensions. And those other dimensions that we can't see and feel and experience very well are the kingdom of heaven. It is what we refer to as the spirit world, heaven and hell, angels and demons and that kind of stuff. And here is the reason it is so hard to imagine a world different than ours is because we've never experienced it and we have no way of knowing it. I'm going to give you an example of why we can't imagine a fifth and sixth dimension by reducing creation to a two-dimensional world. I have this sheet of plexiglass, and this is going to represent the entire universe, a two-dimensional universe. I know those of you who are science nerds you, or math nerds, you know that this actually has thickness, but we're going to imagine that it doesn't, okay? We're going to imagine it's a true plane, a true two-dimensional plane. And this is the entire universe. And this sheet of paper is going to represent a living being in that universe. And this being can, can see this dimension and this dimension, but it only knows two dimensions because it lives in a plane. It does not know there's up or down. Because it can't experience it, it can't perceive it. But it doesn't mean it isn't there. Hello? So this being can move any direction it wants on this plane. Two dimensions. Hello? Okay? But it has no idea that I'm here because I'm not in its plane. But if I visit its plane, it would, it would sense me. If I put two fingers on here, what does that being see? Two circles. I'm now in its plane. I'm in its existence. It can perceive me because I'm in its plane. And then I, oh, it's gone. No, I'm not. I'm right here. I'm just in a third dimension that it's not. It reappeared again. It's gone. There it is again. It's gone. I'm talking about heaven and earth, spirit and physical. Hello? This two-dimensional being only knows these two directions. It cannot, it, it cannot perceive or even imagine that there's an up and down. It just perceives this plane. And I can come in and out of its dimensions, but it can never come into mine. And I'm, listen to me, he who has an ear to hear, 
let him hear, I'm holding its existence in my hand. And I'm right here. But it can't see me at all. I hope you heard that. I'm talking about Jesus. Yeah? Yeah. And my three, my third dimension is not a separate existence from its two, exi- two dimensions. It's just additional. My third dimension is not separate. It is additional. So, if we perceive, uh, if we imagine heaven as uh, the fourth and fifth and sixth and eighth dimensions, these higher existences that we cannot perceive... They're not separate, they're just plus. Okay? Because heaven is not, the spirit world is not non-physical. Jesus took on flesh and walked as a man. And when he was crucified and he died, he physically died, he was buried in a grave, and that body got up out of the grave with the wounds from his crucifixion still in it. Everybody with me? Holes in his hands. Spear hole in his side, holes in his feet, holes in his scalp from the crown of thorns. And he appeared to his disciples and he said, handle me, touch me, see I'm not a ghost. His spirit body was physical. His body after the resurrection was physical, he could be touched. He ate food to prove that I'm not a ghost, this is really me. I'm not a hallucination, I'm really here. But that spirit body was physical plus because he could just appear in a room and in a place and then just disappear and he's physical plus. So the spirit world, heaven is not separate from us, it's just higher. It's in us and on top of us. Uh, Angels in the Old Testament, very physical. There were three angels that ate with Abraham and Sarah. There were the angel that appeared to Samson's parents was physically there. In the New Testament, an angel physically turns the lock in a jail cell door and Peter, when Peter's in jail, opens the door, Peter's asleep, and he pokes him. The angel is physical, but physical plus. Three dimensions plus. Yes? And then disappears. <gasps> he went out of our three dimensions. Everybody with me? All right, so that's a, a mathematical or a, a scientific way of viewing what we call the spirit world or, or what heaven is like and why why miracles occur, where that power is and where God is, is he's in us, he's under us, he's through us, not separate, but just plus, higher. All right, so for those of you who are still skeptical and uh, having a hard time imagining it, let me give you a, a fable. And those of you who've been around, you've heard this before. This is the best way I've been able to come up to explain this so far. A fable about how we in our limited experience and the impossibility of entering the spirit world without dying, how that might be. There are fish in the deep in the ocean, out in the center of the Pacific or the Atlantic, who the fish have never even been to the surface. You know, the fish that live in the dark down deep, you know, like 80% of the ocean's life, maybe like 90% lives even below the level of light. They live in the dark. You've seen the nature shows that are the really spooky, creepy things that live in the, in the bottom of the ocean and ugly stuff. Anyway, but those fish that live in the deep, those fish that live out there, they have heard rumors from the other fish that there is a completely separate, different world called land. 
where there are creatures and activity and beings that don't breathe water. And they're like, no way. No way. I've never seen land. And there's absolutely nothing that doesn't breathe water. Come on, I'm talking about heaven and earth. I'm talking about you and the spirit. And these fish that have never experienced anything else but their own aimless wandering around in the ocean. Like, no way. But there's tuna and marlin out there who like will tell them, like, no, there's something because we've seen boats. They're not fish and they're not birds and we don't understand what they are. They're kind of dangerous because they want to catch us and eat us. But we don't know where they come from. We don't know where they go. But there's something out there that's not from our world. Come on. There's something out there and we don't know exactly what it is. But uh, Finding Nemo, he touched the butt. There's a fish out there that's touched the butt. Sorry if you don't know what I mean. And then there's whales and dolphins who can say, you know what? We've seen it. When we jump out of the water, we see this thing, this place, this mystery called land. It's really there. We can't know it. We can't experience it. We don't know anything about it, but we can see it. It's there. Come on, I'm telling you, I'm talking to you about people who claim they've seen something, but they don't know what they saw. Like, there's something there that's not our world. But guess what? It's all one planet. It's all one place. But there's completely different environments in one place. And the, the fish cannot imagine our existence in the same way we cannot imagine the spirit world accurately at all. Without this. Hello. Okay, so... The whales and the dolphins are like, we've seen it. There's strange things there. We don't know anything about it, but it's definitely there. And there's a place, there's an end to our world. There's an edge. We've heard it's called a beach. There's an end to our world and a beginning of another. But if we go there, we would die. But if they come here, we would, they would die. It's a mystery. And then there's salmon and steelhead. The fish that are born in our rivers that go to the ocean. And when they get to the ocean, they can tell the whales and the dolphins and the tuna and the marlin and all they're like, we've been there. We were born there, actually, and we're from land. But the land has water in it, and we swim down these tiny little ribbons of water, and we see city lights and dams and bridges and cars and humans. We've been there. Come on, that's the prophet's that have seen the visions and had experiences and they don't know what they see, but they've seen it because they've been there. The steelhead and the salmon can say, no, it's really real and it's not our world, but it's there. And then the sea lions and the birds can say, yeah, we live in both worlds all the time. <laughs> Actually, the birds live in three, land and water and air. So, just don't be too quick to be skeptical or doubtful just because you haven't experienced something because there's a lot of testimonies here and there's a lot of thousands, millions of testimonies since then. 
that the spirit world is real, Jesus Christ is alive, that God is real, heaven is real. Many, many people, lots of different experiences. And just because it it makes absolutely no sense in our three-dimensional world doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And it's not separate, it's all one, just different environments. Somehow it's up, but it doesn't mean physically up. Jesus did go physically up into the sky after he resurrected and he went to heaven. Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. Um, The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. But if we imagine that as a physical up and down, that limits God to three dimensions. He's not coming up and down physically, he's coming up and down in dimension. Heaven's on the 10th plane and he's coming down to our third so that we can experience him. That was Jesus taking on flesh. So what is there? What's there? Well, it's God's home, and it's his throne from where he rules all creation. And there's Jesus seated beside him. And there's millions of angels, billions of angels, actually. The Bible word is myriads, which is, uh, goes back to a Latin word that means a million times a million, which is billions. Billions of angels that are worshiping God full-time, screaming so loud, about his holiness that it shakes the universe. And all of the believers in Christ who've died before us are there. The Bible says there's a heavenly temple that is God showed to Moses and God and Moses then used it as a model for the tabernacle and Solomon used it as a model for the temple, but there's no building there. The temple that Revelation and Isaiah and Ezekiel describe is not a physical building. It's it's a dome like a rainbow and And John doesn't even have words to describe what he saw. He said there's something like an emerald and there's something like gold and there's something like a crystal sea and there's something like a rainbow and I just don't have any words for it. It's so beautiful and amazing. But all the parts of the tabernacle are there, the temple of God. There's a tree of life and a garden. I picture that like Rivendell, if you know what that is uh, in the movie, but I know that that is a weak approximation of what... God would make. Hollywood did a pretty good job with those movies, but it's got to be pretty, pretty lame compared to heaven. If Rivendell is lame, then I, I'm, I'm ready to go to heaven. There's a bunch of unearthly stuff, creatures that don't exist on earth and, and uh, things and experiences. And the biggest library in the universe is there. There's Jesus's book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you are born again, your name is in that book. And if you're not, your name is not yet in that book, and we want to get your name in that book. Because that is, that's, that's your entrance into heaven, is that you belong to Jesus. He has every single name of every single person that belongs to him, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But there are millions, billions of other books, because it says, the Bible says there's a book of your life. Every single person that God created, he wrote a book about their life. From before time began, he planned out your life. The Bible says he created good works for you to walk in. And then none of us did. None of us followed the script. So the books in heaven are our life story the way God intended it. None of us did that. We all blew it. We all disobeyed and rebelled and sinned. So God had to dump Jesus' blood all over it. The New Testament says Jesus' blood blots out our sin. Uh, And that means an ink blot. Jesus just poured his blood on it and covers up all of your disobedience, all of your rebellion, and all of your mistakes and failures. And and so your life story in heaven, your book is mostly just Jesus' blood with an occasional sentence here and there when you did something right. (laughs) 
all of us are in the same boat. Every one of us, our book is mostly just covered, drenched in blood. God covering it up with the blood of Jesus. But there are books of the history of the world. The entire history of the world is being written down by angels as it happens. And the Old Testament says that when we talk to each other, which would be this right here, every sermon that every pastor has preached, but every prayer, every conversation, every group, every Bible study, everything, says when, we, when the righteous confer that God sends an angel to write it down and he has a record of what his people said. You know, your prayers from when you were six years old, God wrote them down. He remembers them word for word. You don't remember what you prayed five weeks ago. He remembers what you prayed 50 years ago. And he's working on it. Instead, he's working on it. The Bible says he, he who began his good work in you will complete it. He remembers the things that you prayed. He's never, ever forget. It's all written down. The biggest library in the universe. And there's also a very special room in heaven. Psalm 56, 8 tells us that God has a room full of bottles. And in those bottles, there's a bottle for every person that's ever lived. And those bottles collect our tears. Our tears are so precious to Jesus. They're so valuable. They matter so much to our Heavenly Father that He collects them. And in the end, at the last day, when it says He will wipe every tear from every eye, I believe he's going to drink them into his fire and they will evaporate in his love and everything will be made perfect. Every tear wiped away, every pain gone, every issue resolved, everyone's justice made perfect. So who gets to go to heaven? Who's there as far as humans? Who's there? Well, only bad people get to go to heaven. Good people go to hell. And I mean that. I did not reverse that. Bad people go to heaven. Good people go to hell. What I mean is Jesus' story of the man who begged God for forgiveness because he thought he was so bad. Jesus says, I'll forgive his sin. But the guy whose prayer was, thanks God for making me a pretty good person. I'll see you when I get there. Jesus said he's going to hell because he thinks he's a good person. If you admit that you're not, if you admit your wickedness and your unrighteousness, you will be forgiven. And if you insist on believing that you're a good person, you will end up in hell. Only bad people get to go to heaven. Only the people that follow Jesus end up in heaven. He is the way. John 14, Jesus is speaking. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is talking about, in this moment, to his disciples, he's talking about crucifixion. He's like, I'm, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised from the dead, and I'm going to go to my Father in heaven. And he says, and you know how to follow me. And he knows they don't have a clue, 
what he means. And Thomas just is the one who's brave enough. To, Thomas is just the one who's brave. We call him Doubting Thomas, but really he's not. He's Believing Thomas. But he's the one bold enough to say, Jesus, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know where you're going, so how can I know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. Just follow me. Stick with me. That's the way. And for us, this is eternal life. Jesus, I am the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven. No one gets in the presence of God except by Jesus Christ. He alone. Not all religions are equal. There is no other way. Um, the other... The other religions are lies, and I don't mean that those people are intentionally lying, I just mean they've been lied to. Jesus is the only way. You must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So only bad people get to go to heaven, because only people who admit that they need a Savior, who admit they need forgiven and follow Jesus, are the ones who end up in heaven. The people who are too good to bother, I don't need a Savior, I don't need Jesus, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, you'll find your own way and you won't find your way to heaven. What happens when somebody dies? What does the Bible tell us about what happens? Well, if they belong to Jesus, this is what happens. Luke 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross next to the thief. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. There's no time lag. There's no wandering spirit. You don't have to find your own way. Uh, and hope that you stumble across the gates of heaven. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The moment that our spirit leaves our body, like a foot coming out of a slipper, we're in the presence of Jesus, if you belong to him. If you don't, you're going to be in the presence of demons that will take you to the lake of fire. I hope that you don't want that. But Jesus said, if you're with me, you will get there immediately, today. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us this, While we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are well pleased to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. If our, when our soul, the real you, your, what normally gets called your personality, your thoughts, your feelings, that's the real you, that's your soul. When it comes out of this body, Paul tells us you're immediately with the Lord. If you belong to him, you are immediately with the Lord. You won't have to find your own way or figure anything out. It won't be scary. He's right there. Philippians 1, 21 to 23 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the body, this will mean fruit from my labor. But I cannot decide, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, desiring to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul's not suicidal, he's not despondent, he doesn't have a death wish, he just loves Jesus so much and he has such solid faith that he's not at all, he's not only not scared of death, he's like, I can't wait to get out of this body and off this planet and go be with Jesus because that is far better than this existence, far better. So we're not afraid of death, we know that Jesus is real and he's there, his promise of eternal life is true. And the death has nothing to be afraid. The Romans thought that the early, the first century Christians were crazy because they would take it on a, at a funeral. They would take the casket, and as they would travel down the street to the cemetery, they would dance and sing. They would celebrate that death is a graduation. It's a promotion. It's glory to go be with Jesus. Do babies and children go to heaven? Yes, absolutely, hundred percent. Mark ten. 
They brought little children to him. Another gospel says it's the parents of these children bring their kids to Jesus for a blessing that he might bless them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought him. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. Greatly displeased is actually a hilarious translation of what the Greek says. Jesus was furious that they wouldn't let the kids come to him. He's like, don't you dare tell them that I'm too important to bless their kids. Jesus loves little kids. And the word means toddlers, children, little children, three, four, and under. He said, he was greatly displeased and he said, you let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. Okay, right there, Jesus just flipped the script. He's no longer just talking about the kids that are with him right then. He says, heaven is full of kids. You see it? Heaven is full of kids. Such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And so he just changed it again, and now he tells us, if you want to be saved, if you want eternal life, you have to become childlike, meaning innocent and soft-hearted and kind. And, you know, we all know kids are full of sin and wickedness too, but they're, but they're innocent. They don't know it. They're not aware of it when they're really little. Jesus said you have to become like a little child. That verse is kind of, that verse is pretty famous. But that's not what he said in the previous sentence. He said, let the little children come to me for such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is full of children. That's an eternal statement. So every aborted baby, every miscarriage, every infant death, every one of those souls is in heaven without question. It's because they're innocent. In the Old Testament, God uses two phrases about people's innocence. He said, before they're old enough or before they're wise enough to know their right hand from their left. Really little kids don't know that. And God is talking about their awareness of sin. But they don't know their right hand from their left. That's what he says of the people of Nineveh. He's talking about adults when he's chewing out Jonah. But God says of the adults, they're just little children. They don't know their right hand from their left. Morally. Well, that's America. The other phrase God uses is before they're old enough to know the, to choose the right and reject the wrong. There does come a time in the development of your child where when they're two and three, they're not aware of sin and guilt and they don't, they're doing plenty of wrong, but they don't know it. Even when they're choosing it, they're not really eternally aware, but somewhere about nine or 10 or 12 years old, their heart gets turned on toward things of accountability and God and the fear of the Lord and justice. And I don't know what that age is, but God's very clear that we're not judged for what we don't know. Jesus prayed that on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's an eternal statement to all of humanity. In the Old Testament, God says that he will save the mentally retarded man, meaning like Down syndrome, autism, severe cerebral palsy, the people who are not able to interact and understand the gospel, they're not going to hell. We're all born in sin, but those people are innocent of guilt because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know enough to choose the right and reject the wrong. God is very, very merciful. Very merciful. He took them up in his arms and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. You can be totally assured that if you've lost a child or someone you love has, that, that child is with Jesus. Absolutely. So what kind of existence do people have when they get to heaven? Well, 
again, using the Bible as our sole definition, um, they did not become fat babies with six-inch long wings floating on clouds playing harps. They aren't little cupids. Um, They didn't sprout wings. The people who are there are not in mindless, empty worship. I've told you who've been around a lot before that when I was a kid growing up in church, I wasn't sure I wanted to go to heaven because it sounded really boring. Because my picture of heaven was something like Muslim prayer, where for eternity we're all just on our knees going, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. And I, I don't, that doesn't sound fun. I mean, I, at, at six-year-old me and 12-year-old me and 18-year-old me never would have said that. I would not dare to have admitted it because I don't want to go to hell. But heaven did not sound very interesting and because church was not very interesting. I liked the Bible stories. I loved Bible stories as a kid, but, and, and I, I had the hymn book memorized. I could sing every song with my eyes closed. Sarah grew up in the same kind of church, and, and we just, but I don't know. I just didn't want to do that for eternity. Whatever is there is, is passionately interesting. We're more alive there than we are here. You won't regret it. I guarantee you that. And hell is not a party either. It isn't an ACDC concert. You don't want to go there. Heaven is not an all-inclusive spa resort. It is not an all-you-can-eat buffet. If you haven't seen WALL-E, you need to watch that and see what happens when life is an all-you-can-eat buffet where you don't have to do anything. There will be purpose and there is, there is accomplishment and there is meaning. It's not, it's not just eternal boredom. But the Bible actually doesn't say very much to us about what the afterlife is like except that the word sleeping is used over and over again. Matthew 9, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, um, Jesus and Paul use the word sleeping, that those Christians who've died before us are sleeping. I think a thousand-year nap sounds just wonderful. (laughs) And in the Old Testament, when somebody died, uh, when it records the lives of all the kings, and it says when he died, it says, and he slept with his fathers. So the word sleep is Old Testament and New Testament. Notice he slept with his fathers. We will be family in heaven. You will, have, you will be with your family. Some of you that's exciting and some of you that's distressing. But remember, it will be heaven. Only those who belong to Jesus will be there, which may be some that you don't like here and now. <laughs> oh, but Jesus will have straightened them out. Um, we will be family you will be related to who you're related to. Jesus said we won't be married. I don't know how to explain that. We're not married, but we're family. I, I don't get that. You will be American. You will speak English. Every nation, tongue, and tribe. Yes. We will sing praises to Jesus for eternity in English. But the Ukrainians will sing it in Ukrainian. And the Swahili will sing it in Swahili. And we will all love each other and be more one than we've ever been. As the entirety of humanity, we will also be more distinct individually than we've ever been because now we try to minimize that and hide it because I don't, I don't want to stick out. And we're told that it's bad to notice differences in race and ethnicity and language and we don't want to talk about all that. And like Jesus is all into it because he made you to be who you are. and You're totally an individual, but you're totally, and in heaven we'll all be totally one and we will all love each other and we won't be confused, the languages won't be confused, but every language will be spoken. And it will be family, and you will be who you are, just perfected, but you will be who you are. The sleeping part is interesting because they're not asleep. Jesus told us that they're conscious. They know us. They remember their own life. They're watching. They're praying. People in heaven and hell are praying. 
Get that from this story. Luke chapter 19, 16, excuse me. Jesus is telling this story. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in fine, in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously. That means he ate really well. Fared sumptuously every day and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and so it was that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. And likewise, Lazarus received evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. He is comforted. That's what I want to bring out to you, that your loved ones who've died and gone on before you, if they belong to Jesus, they are in total comfort and in peace. They're in peace. They're comforted. But the people in hell are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. You see, he's praying for his unsaved brothers, his wicked family. The people in hell are crying out for somebody to save their unsaved family. They know they're not dead. They know they're not saved. They know they don't want them to join them in the lake of fire. Hello, this isn't exactly sleeping. There's consciousness, there's awakeness. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And Jesus is talking about himself there as he tells that story. So the Bible says the people who died are sleeping, but... Then we see in this story, both Lazarus and the rich man remember their life, they're conscious, they're talking, alert. Um, and then in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11, we get this list of all the heroes of faith that have gone before us in Scripture. And then Hebrews 12.1 says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, they're watching us. I don't think that means your great-grandpa sees you in the shower, but they're aware of something. They're aware of something. Cheering us on. They're praying for us. They're worshiping the Lord, but they're alert. They see. They remember their own life. They remember the people they loved. And they're praying for those people and calling out to the Lord. And, and likewise, people in hell from this story. So, so what does it mean if it says, the Bible says they're sleeping? Well, what I think that means is that they're, the people who died, when the Bible says they're sleeping, it's some sort of they're not as conscious as we're all going to be when it's all done. The people in heaven are not yet perfected because Hebrews 12 tells us that. They can't be saved apart from us. So it is, nothing's going to be perfect. Even in heaven, nothing is perfect yet until everything is done. Until Jesus returns and everyone is there. That's all Hebrews 12. Don't have time to go into that. But they're sleeping in that they're resting. They're at perfect peace and perfect rest. But... They're just not as conscious of everything as they're going to be when it's all over. So let's talk about heaven. Heaven is not perfect yet. Number one, because you're not there and God is desperate for you to get there. So it's not perfect yet. It's not complete. 
it's not as good as it's going to be because God doesn't have all his children there yet. Yes? And there are people still praying in heaven because God has not yet judged the world and brought justice in every case. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. And I saw under the altar the sons of those, the souls of those who had died, who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed as they were was completed. The people who've literally given their physical life for Jesus, the martyrs, are as close to God as you can possibly get in heaven. They're under the altar, right in front of God's face. They remember their earthly life. And they are alert, and they are praying, and they are asking God for vengeance. My justice is not yet complete, God. I don't know how they're in perfect peace and at perfect rest. Because they are, they're just trusting God and they're in his presence. But they're not yet resolved. Because justice hasn't happened. Judgment has not come. They're asking God for vengeance. Like, God, this thing was done to me that was wrong and you haven't said it right yet. And so, my point is, not everything in heaven is perfect yet. Until the very end, these people have an unanswered prayer. That should help some of us. Maybe get a little more patient. It's not true that there are no tears in heaven yet. It's true that There won't be later, but right now there's still things that are unresolved. These people are praying, God, I want justice. I was wronged, and you need to make it right. Like, well, that sounds a lot like revenge. It is. The Bible doesn't say revenge is wrong. It's just wrong for us. God will bring justice. God will vindicate every single servant of his who was wronged. That's justice. There are lots of tears in heaven. There's billions of bottles of tears in heaven right now, the ones that we're still crying. But I think every single Christian that we know who's gone to be with the Lord has wept bitterly when they got there. Remember the fire I talked to you about two weeks ago? That our lives will go through the fire of God and what was wood and hay and stubble is going to be burned up what had eternal value, God says, is gold and silver and jewels. And every single person that we know that's been to heaven has had to go through that fire. The Bible calls it the judgment seat of Christ. Every individual person stands before Jesus and their life goes through the fire. And Jesus says, all right, whatever you did that was purely earthly, it's worthless here. And it burns up. Whatever you did was eternal, in true love, in real forgiveness, in real worship and obedience to God. That's eternal value that that will live through the fire. That's gold and silver and jewels. And every single person that we know who's gone to heaven has had their life go through that fire. And I think they've all guaranteed, maybe except like Corey Ten Boom and the Apostle Paul, um, everyone experienced unimaginable regret. Bitter tears when they see how much trash is burned up out of their life. I wasted so much time. I spent so much money on myself. I lived for myself. I did not do things of eternal value very often. And I I think that there was great wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is not unloving. He's not unforgiving. But he's going to say, okay, we're going to have an honest look 
at who you really are and how you really behaved and what you really did and didn't do. And I'm going to put your life in the fire and everything that's worthless is going to burn up. And he's going to put 100% of your life through the fire and maybe 2% will come out. And I think there's great wailing and gnashing of teeth when I will see for the very first time my true and naked self and how worthless of stuff I lived for and wasted my time and my money and my thoughts and my feelings and my ambitions and the things that I thought I needed to accomplish and the things I wanted other people to do. And, and I will see my hideous, grotesque nakedness in front of his glory and purity. And I will know for the very first time how much he loves me because he knew that all along. I was just full of justifications and excuses and, and self-righteousness and thinking I'm a pretty good person and, and I'm living for God and I'm a good Christian and, and he'll burn all that away. And I think I will fall on my face and scream like I've never screamed before in regret. And then he will touch me and wash it all away and pull me up and look me in the eye and say, I love you, good and faithful servant come into my kingdom and then I will fall on my face and scream holy with the angels that are shaking the cornerstones of the universe because for the very first time I will really understand how great he is and how much he loves me and how much I do not deserve to be there but he's brought me in don't think there are no tears in heaven every person that has met Jesus has wept but he is that good he is that kind Another thing that might surprise you is that they didn't get a new body. The people who died and went to heaven did not get a new body. Jesus' body that died on the cross is the same body that got up out of the grave. It was just on a higher dimension. But it was still the same body with all of his same wounds. That's his eternal body. And you will live in this body forever. Just this body plus. But you are who you are. DNA, your DNA will not change. If you're born again, you're already born again. You're not going to get born again again. You will live in this body forever. It will be a higher dimensional body, but it's, it's still this one. And uh, Jesus' body after his resurrection is, is the model of that, is proof. It was still the same body, but, but he could come and go as he willed, and, and we will too. We will be able to move in other dimensions, and, but it's, it's not unphysical. It's just physical plus. So take care of it. If you belong to Jesus, your body is holy. It's your physical body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit, not some ethereal heart that doesn't exist in the physical. Your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Take care of it. I've had to repent of that this week. I'm going to do better. Taking care of my temple. So that's heaven. Anybody you know that has gone before you who said yes to Jesus, who asked for forgiveness of their sin, made him Lord, is there. Anybody that didn't, anybody that refused, I'm, I'm a good person, I don't need Jesus, I don't believe all that God gobbledygook, they're not in heaven. It's not true that everybody just goes to a better place. It's not true at all. Hell's a devastating place. It's a lake of fire where also there is eternity and people are physically there. It's a physical place. It's a real liquid fire. And people are eternally dying, but never, never dying. Not because 
God is a torturous God, but because they chose not to live in his presence. They made the decision. No, I don't want him. That's what makes hell hell is God's not there. So it's not God proving a point to inflict punishment. It's just, well, okay. C.S. Lewis said those who end up in hell got what they wanted. God invited them to heaven their entire life. And at the end, he just says, okay, fine, have it your way. And that's hell is your way. If you haven't made Jesus Lord, if you haven't asked him for forgiveness and called on his name, I ask you to do that this morning. I invite you to come and this is what we mean by saved. We mean a lot of things by saved, but one of the things we mean is saved from hell, saved into heaven, saved into eternal life. So if you need to do that, let's do that now. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Thank you, Jesus, for your offer of eternal life. We believe that it's real. We believe that it's true, that your word is right and true and the only real description of what is the afterlife, what is eternity. Lord, we believe that you have the keys of death and hell and that you rule eternity because you proved it. You were dead for three days and you rose from the dead and you're, you're the only man who's been victorious over death. So we trust you and we believe that you are the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God except through you. So we say yes to you now. Yes, Jesus, we believe you are the way. We will stick with you. We will follow your word and your instruction. We give our lives to you. We ask for forgiveness of our sin. We ask you to wash it all away in your blood. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for paying the price for our salvation, for our eternal life.